an ambivert is someone that can act like an introvert at times and an extrovert at other times, so that they are both sides of it. Now, I had a new term, so I'm excited, Sid. So I did about 20 interviews in a row, and I'm excited, so I explain what it is. Every single executive said, I'm an ambivert, which statistically was highly unlikely, but I got 20 in a row. And so after a couple hundred interviews of people, I've come to conclusion, it's a bell curve. Some people like myself are very extroverted. Other people are very introverted, but most people are a little bit extroverted, introverted. So about 40% of executives are introverts, 40% are extroverts, but about 20% are genuine ambiverts. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Today on the SIDCast, we talk leadership. I've been talking leadership for uh, most of my career, and if you're a, a longtime listener, even an occasional listener of the SIDCast, you know that my own perspective on leadership kind of works its way into these conversations by hook or by crook. But today in this episode, uh, with my guest Carl Moore, who is a professor at McGill University in Canada in management, specializing in leadership, we get to geek out a little bit on leadership. I don't know. There's so many things to say about this. It's not just one episode, obviously, but a lot comes to mind to kind of set the table for today's session. First is Ancestry.com. Any of you uh, do anything with Ancestry? I recently actually did the DNA test. I was afraid to do it because they tell you it's private. They tell you it's protected. There's always a risk that it's not, but I figured, fine, let me just do it. Let me see what matches are up there. And I'm just getting back the results and looking at it and uh, discovering I have an incredible number of fourth cousins that I never heard of, which is actually not all that surprising. But the reason I mention ancestry is it gets to a really fundamental question in leadership and actually one that I keep getting asked time and time again. And that is, are leaders made or are they born that way? Are leaders made or are they born? And it's kind of an endless question. It's a nature versus nurture question. And so people love this question because people want to know who we are and how we think. And people want to know, you know why we do what we do, which is kind of why I do the podcast, the SIDCast in the first place. But the question is a little bit misplaced because it's not an either or, is it? It's not that we're made, that our genetic pool determines everything that happens to us, that we are essentially pre-programmed to live a life a particular way the second we are conceived. And it's not that everything that we do day to day as we try to strive and succeed and interact and accomplish and all those other wonderful things, that that completely defines where we end up and what we end up accomplishing. It's a little bit of both. But to me, the fact that the question comes up so often, I guess, points out how people really like simplistic solutions. They want to know the answer. And this is one where there's no simple answer. But the one thing I know for sure is that even if your genetic profile that you were given, that you had no control over, even if that gave you many naturally endowed benefits with respect to being a leader or the opposite, that you didn't, it actually will not be, not only not be controlling, but it, it could even be marginal in what happens to you because you can learn. People could learn how to be a leader. People could learn how to be a better leader. 
people can learn that. And sometimes, you know, somebody's just kind of a natural and got this great interpersonal skills, but they don't do anything with it. Where they end up, actually, I don't know, often not that great. So my kind of first core belief about leadership is that we can, each of us, learn how to be leaders. I'm not saying that each of us can become a Martin Luther King, become this generational or multi-generational leader in the same way that you know, I think about creativity. Some people are born more creative than others. Some people have artistic skills or linguistic skills or, or what have you. And they're better than other people. Of course, that's the case. That's the lottery of our genetic pool. That's a lottery of our DNA. But anyone can learn to be creative. Again, we're not going to become Picasso, but we can learn to be creative. There are techniques, there are methods, there are ways to do it, and you just have to be willing to try to do it. And I spend a lot of my time helping leaders, helping people, even a lot of young people these days. I love to mentor and coach younger people earlier in their career or just starting out. Because, you know, as you get older, you could say you get older and that's what you get with age or you get wiser. And I prefer to say I get wiser. Whether it's true or not, someone else can decide for me. I like that notion. And there's a lot that we can learn if we're willing to learn, willing to invest in it. All of this comes to mind when I think about some of the research and recent work that my guest on this episode of the SIDCAST has been working on, Carl Moore, because he's been writing a book on introversion, extroversion, and ambiversion which is a weird word. Ambivert is kind of like ambidextrous, right? Some people can use their left hand, their right hand equally well. And that's what he was looking at when it comes to being an introvert and extrovert, that these so-called ambiverts can actually be effective as an introvert and as an extrovert, which is a very cool idea because you can imagine sometimes it would be quite handy to be able to turn on that extrovert gene, if you will, and command the room and put on the performance you need to put on. And then other times to turn back on the uh, introvert gene or button when you want to be introspective when you want to be self-aware, when you want to think quietly, or when you want to just, you know, enjoy your own company. So the ambiverts can do both, which is a very interesting idea because, I mean, it gets to this whole thing about DNA and genes. I remember reading somewhere that people have some type of shyness gene, which means basically that there's a genetic basis to being an introvert or an extrovert. And so the fact that we have these ambiverts makes it all the more interesting. Goes to show you there's a lot of different ways to do that. So anyway, I talked to Carl about some of these ideas about his book and the work he's doing. By the way, the idea of an ambivert, I should also mention, it means it's quite consistent with what has been called a situational view of leadership without being too academic about this. One version of leadership says, look, we are who we are. We have to be authentic and we have to do whatever it is we do. And if we're an introvert, we're always an introvert. If we're extrovert, we're always an extrovert or whatever it happens to be. But a situational view of leadership says, well, we adapt our behavior to the situation we're in. And that turns out to be much more effective. Maybe unsurprisingly, it turns out to be much more effective. And also a theme consistent with some of my own findings in my own research and book on super bosses, on how the most effective leaders actually customize how they work with each person on their team, that they adjust their behavior and their actions to other people, which is kind of classic situational leadership. Maybe none of this is all that surprising because if you have kids, do you treat each kid the same way? You have friends, do you treat each friend the same way? And there's some consistency because we are who we are, but we also know that if you want to accomplish something, if you want people to do what you want them to do, you want them to behave in a way that is advantageous to you, you want to help people, you need to adjust to them. You need to try to figure out what it is that makes them tick and treat them differently. It's not a one size fits all. So once again, when it comes to leadership, some of the interesting findings and ideas actually apply to everyday life just as well. Anyways, there's a lot more I could say about leadership, but I think we should just get into the conversation. It's a classic kind of give and take because Carl 
very experienced teacher and lecturer and has interviewed, he himself has, you know, podcasts and radio shows and has interviewed many, many CEOs. And so you'll see it's a pretty freewheeling conversation and a lot of fun. And I think a lot of insights have come out of it. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein. And my guest today is Carl Moore. Hi, Carl. Hi, Sid. Good to see you. Good to have you on the show. Where are you today? Montreal, Canada. We're in uh, curfew as eight of night as of Saturday night. So I looked outside, there was a lone woman with her dog. So up in snowy Canada, not too different from New Hampshire. No, not too different, except that in Canada, people are treating COVID a lot more seriously, it seems, with lockdowns and restrictions. And in America, it's not quite that way, which actually raises a question about, and you know, I'm, I don't know if you know this, but I'm Canadian by birth as well. It's just interesting to compare Canada to the U.S. in so many dimensions. You, of course, know a lot about that from your experience and the work that you've done. How would you describe the difference between a Canadian and an American? Well, I lived six years in the States, went to school in L.A. and Boston, and then most of my life in Canada, five years taught at Oxford and Europe. Canadians tend to be a bit more conservative, maybe overly careful, not as good at being entrepreneurs as Americans are, uh, a little bit more risk adverse, which is reflected in the COVID-19 crisis, I think, as well. We were the place where the Mounties always got their man and you go in a saloon and you put your gun to outside, where in the US, there's much more respect for guns and so on. So I think it's a matter of the two cultures. The license plate in New Hampshire, recall, is give us freedom or death. It's live free or die. So it's close. Yeah. So it's something where you go, gee, that strikes Canadians a bit wound up. So there's a greater love for freedom in the US and more about we have social medicine up here. We have high taxes, but most of us accept that as a reasonable quid pro quo for a bit more fair society. So we're a bit more Scandinavian in a way. But many Canadians who do well go down to the States because there's bigger opportunities. And we're yeah. very proud of the millions of Canadians who've ended up in the States at Dartmouth, at Stanford, at startups in the Silicon Valley, Goldman Sachs in New York. And as an English-speaking Canadian said, I go down to the U.S. and no one says, where are you from? Because I can argue presidential politics, NFL and NBA, as well as any American, when you go, you're wrong, but you know what you're talking about. Where Europeans just don't care about NFL, NBA, and roll their eyes at presidential politics. But as an English Canadian, I watch the evening ABC News, NBC News a couple times a week, and I just feel very comfortable in the US. And it's hard to find a parallel in the world, maybe Australians and New Zealanders, that feel utterly at home in each other's countries, particularly Canadians in the States. It's really funny about that. I know exactly what you mean. Then you get questions, which I've had over the years, not in more recent times, but do you celebrate Mother's Day, for example? And I don't know, Valentine's Day and things like this. And of course, you know, many countries, including in the UK, the dates are not always the same. They do celebrate many of the same customs, but it's really quite interesting. I wonder how this is playing out in terms of the vaccine rollout. It's been abysmally slow in the US with signs of improvement. What's the status in Canada? It's probably a little bit better, partly because we have socialized medicine, Obamacare, if you would, on steroids, where, you know, everyone is covered by it. And so it's a bit more centralized, albeit it's at the provincial, if you would, state level rather than at the national level. So there are some screw ups, but because it's a province wide system and not a bunch of HMOs, it's probably a bit more organized. And the guy they put in charge is a major general. Sometimes the military just seems like the right people to go, let's get organized, let's give orders, let's go do it. And so it's a bit better than the U.S., but there's still uh, lots of room for improvement. And particularly with the need to have two uh, shots of one of the vaccines, that's been a bit of a struggle as well. So we can't be too critical of the U.S. because we have our own faults. But because of the nature of the system, probably a little bit ahead of it. Yeah. And 
One last point about comparisons. I know that you've interviewed Prime Minister Trudeau in Canada, and everyone knows about Trump and now Biden is in. The contrasts are endless, but you're also a student of leadership and a student of CEOs. And I don't want to get you in trouble or me in trouble for that matter, because, you know, I have had my share of hate mail a few years ago when I started to write about Trump leadership style, and I decided it's not worth my troubles. But other than the obvious, and this is kind of a specific and a general question. So the specific relates to Trump and Trudeau, but the more general is American CEOs versus Canadian CEOs. Are there any stable differences? There's some tendencies, so I can waffle a bit there as a good academic. I've interviewed probably a thousand, a little over a thousand CEOs, prime ministers, generals, other senior leaders, primarily CEOs. Now, I have a radio show I interview CEOs every week. I interviewed the CEO of Mercedes Worldwide last week, interviewed the CEO of Simons, a big retailer in Canada, just a few minutes ago. And I have a CEO class. So I've interviewed about a thousand. Among said, there's very few advantages being older. One is that you've done things longer than almost anyone else around. So I've interviewed a lot in Europe, the US and Canada. Canadian CEOs tend to be a little bit more conservative, fitting with Canada's national culture, mm-hmm. with some wonderful exceptions. They also tend to be a bit more careful, not as charismatic. In Canada, we have few charismatic leaders. Prime Minister Joe is one of them. But when you think of Prime Minister Harper, Prime Minister Joe Clark, Paul Martin, excellent leaders, they were not the big charismatic leader Now, Trudeau and Mulroney are, but by and large, we're just more nervous about the big personality in Canada to a considerable degree. Now, there are some wonderful exceptions. And when I hear from U.S. CEOs, they have the bigger personality, more extroverted. But these days, humility and saying, I don't know, is particularly an important skill for a CEO. And I think during the COVID-19 crisis, we'd never been here before. We honestly didn't know what we're going to do. So you took a more of a humble approach because... I need to listen to people that are doing small experiments across the organization to see what's working today. In retail, for example, in most companies, switch to digital. So I needed to talk to the IT people, the digital people more. So I didn't really know what I was talking about. So I had to listen, make a decision as CEO. So there are some tendencies, but I think these days in COVID-19, more CEOs in the US or around the world are going a little bit more humble mode, but there's still that need for the inspiring leadership of the CEO to say, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to make it through. We have the abilities, the strength, the wonderful capabilities. So you need that inspiring leadership still in the crisis, but there's still a lot of listening and learning going along the way. Yeah. You know what you're pointing out is one of the things I've seen over the years when it comes to many aspects of leadership, but in particular, the one that you're alluding to, which is the balance between confidence, self-confidence and humility. Many people look at it as an either or type of uh, story, and I don't think it is at all. I think you need both. If you can't inspire other people, if you can't kind of take control of a situation when it needs taking control of, you're just not going to be an effective uh, leader. On the other hand, if that's all you ever do, there's no room for anyone else. There's no air for anyone else. You're not going to be that type of listener you're describing. So it's one of those paradoxes, right, of leadership. It's a little counterintuitive on the face of it, but then you start thinking about it and you say, well, of course, it's got to be that way. I'm doing a book for Stanford. The title is We're All ambiverts now. So traditionally, we looked at uh, leadership literature, it said senior leaders are mainly extroverts. Now, when I looked at the literature, it was almost anecdotal or psychology professors interviewing undergraduates, which are great people. And as a professor, we have an endless supply and laws, we don't use electric prods or something, it's all fine. But it's a matter of going, no one had really talked to senior executives. 
So I've done about 450 interviews of CEOs and other C-suite executives to talk about, are they introverted, ambiverted, or extroverted? What, and, what does ambiverted mean? Well, I mean, I can guess, but let's get the definition. No, it's a great point. As a Canadian, I'm very proud that it was invented by a Canadian in Toronto, at the University of Toronto in the 20s. And it almost entirely disappeared from the literature until Adam Grant, who's a rock star professor down in Wharton, looked at it with some colleagues from Harvard about what makes the best salespeople. And he brought in the term from the literature ambivert. And so an ambivert is someone that can act like an introvert at times and an extrovert at other times, so that they are both sides of it. Now, I had a new term, so I'm excited, Sid. So I did about 20 interviews in a row, and I'm excited, so I explain what it is. Every single executive said, I'm an ambivert, which statistically was highly unlikely, but I got 20 in a row. And so after a couple hundred interviews of people, I've come to the conclusion it's a bell curve. Some people like myself are very extroverted. Other people are very introverted, but most people are a little bit extroverted, introvert. So about 40% of executives are introverts, 40% are extroverts, but about 20% are genuine ambiverts. But the point of making why almost every executive says they're an ambivert is because to be a senior leader, you need to act like an introvert at times and listen. So David Benster runs Aldo, a big uh, Canadian retailer. When he goes to a meeting, if he actually wants a conversation, he doesn't put his ideas out there. But as soon as the CEO puts their ideas out there, everybody goes, oh, that's great. I love it. That's why you're CEO boss. He'll say, Sid, what do you think? Carl, what do you think? Susan, what do you think? And he'll go around the room getting everybody's thoughts, which as an extrovert, you got to bite your tongue. But that being introverted is the right thing to do, according to most CEOs I talk to, because then you get actual discussion. At the end, the CEO happily gets to decide. So it's, you know, but you've taken on board everybody's ideas and got to a better idea. But to your point that you mentioned earlier, Sid, is that sometimes a CEO's got to be more the extrovert and give that inspiring speech. So what I'm arguing is that most senior leaders have got to act like an ambivert. Sometimes you act introverted, other times extroverted, because that's what the circumstance requires. But we have a hard wiring. So I'm an extrovert. Say la vie. I'm supposed to speak French in public. My tutor will be happy I did. I hope it sounded all right to you. I've got to act like the other, but it exhausts me. So there's some research that suggests they looked at four-month-old babies. That is probably 40 to 50% inherited. Because what they looked at is, you know, babies don't talk, maybe in New Hampshire, but in Canada, babies don't talk at that age. And what they tested as a response to stimulation, then four years followed them and found out that the babies who like stimulation more apt to be extroverts. So a central idea, said of introversion, extroversion is the response to stimulation. Extroverts enjoy and look for stimulation. It lights up their brains. They get dopamine hits. Introverts love people, love stimulation, but they have limits. So they recharge by taking introvert breaks. As an extrovert, I recharge by taking extrovert breaks. So I've got a hard wiring, which is natural. So I've got to act like an introvert, but it's exhausting, and I need to take extrovert breaks to recover. That's what I'm arguing executives need to do, senior leaders, is act like both. So there's a lot of questions that come up on this, but the first one is about authenticity, that we endlessly hear that leaders have to be authentic. And there's some truth to it, and then there's also a lot of bunk to it. But if you're going to be authentic and you're an extrovert leader, are you going to be faking it and pretending if you're an introvert? And why is that a good idea? Well, it's something where when you think of David Benson going in the room, his natural tendency in mind would be to put my ideas out there. In fact, as an extrovert, I think aloud. So I'll go to see one of my uh, students, one of my assistants and say, hey, Susan, I'll have 10 ideas. Eight are dumb. One is all right. One is good. I don't care. I'm not embarrassed by the dumb ideas. I'm just not. There's a, one good idea is what I want. So I think aloud. So the tendency of an expert is to do that, but you might have to fake it till you make it in the sense that we understand it's the right thing is to be more like an introvert and listen. 
That's the right thing to do, the ethical thing to do. But we have to bite our tongues. Part of that is just being an adult and growing up. That as a parent, I remember when our son Eric, who's at McGill now studying physics, around grade three or four, my wife teaches grade one, you lose your name as a parent. You're Eric's father. And you go, but I'm bigger than him. I make more money. I have more education. Like I win on every level other than he's cuter. But it's a matter as a good parent, you step to the back and let the kids be the front. If you go to your spouse's place of work, you don't try to dominate because that would be inappropriate. So there's a point where you've got to learn to act like an adult and let other people go front and center if you're an extrovert and calm down a bit. It's called maturity. So there's a tension with authenticity, but to me, it's simply learning to be a good leader and to be a good adult in some ways. Yeah. So authenticity, when the authenticity calls for you to behave in ways that are not effective, that are not optimal, to be sure, like always being the extrovert, always being the center of attention, that doesn't make a lot of sense. If the authenticity is on the other side, it gets a bit more complicated though, right? If you're a natural introvert, and you want to be authentic, and you want to be that good listener. Those things are all good things. But I think your research is also saying, well, sometimes you need to step out of that and kind of take on a bigger persona. Part of it is that as an introvert, I love introverts working for me. So in a meeting, I'll not call them right away. I'll, you know, I don't have to call the experts. They'll start right away. But I might look at you, Sid, in a meeting if you're an introvert. I'll just look at you, and I'm saying, are you ready to speak? And if you go, no, I won't call on you. But if you say yes, I'll go, hey, Sid, do you have anything you want to throw into the conversation? you know, in a very relaxed way like that. So the danger of an introvert, the great strength is listening. The danger is paralysis by analysis, that they overthink it and they never get to contribute. So as an extrovert, I'll call on them, maybe push them a little forward. And I gave a talk at the Harvard Business School MBA program two years ago. And part of it in the case method, what you need to do is to get good grades is contribute. So if I'm an expert sitting beside an introvert, I might, you know, nudge them and say, hey, Sid, you have great ideas. You should speak up. And I would encourage them to. And as a professor, I would understand who's an introverted and encourage them to speak. So I have mm -hmm. to learn to modify my behavior as an introvert and not let paralysis by analysis occur. Otherwise, those great ideas are going to be lost and you're not going to contribute. You're not going to make right. the world as a good place as you could. That's a great point. But, you know, if you're the CEO and the introvert, there's no one who's going to call on you, is there? You're the boss. And that's when I think you get a real challenge. Well, th that's uh, just being a leader is that you need to speak forth. And the board has appointed you. And by and large, your colleagues agree that you're a great person to do that. That means that I need to share my ideas more quickly than I may have in the past. But as you age and get older, you get more confident in your ideas. And you learn that it's good behavior to bring them forward. But you're more confident there's value to them. But also you go hey, to the team, here's something I'm thinking. Not that we're going to have to do this, but just I'm throwing this idea out there to let you mold it and think about it and reject it if you think it's a dumb idea. So I think that this is part of growing into the leadership role. Now, some people can't be leaders because they're too introverted or too extroverted, and they just can't modify their behavior. And if you can't, that's fine. Be an AI programmer. I'm on the board of a small AI company. We love the programmers that all they do is program all day, and we pay them a lot of money. So you can be very valuable as a more introverted or extroverted person, but just realize that if you're not willing to modify that behavior a bit, you can't be a senior leader by and large. Yeah. I mean, what all this boils down to is situation-based leadership. And that's an old debate, right? Do you behave in a way that is accustomed or is customized to the situation you're in, or do you behave the way you truly are deep down? And I think research has shown time and time again, something quite consistent, I think, with what you're finding, which is that situation-based leadership is just a more effective form of leadership. I always think about 
how do you accomplish the goal that you have in mind? Is it by just doing what comes naturally to you? Well, then you're kind of lucky if that's the case. Or is it about customizing and adjusting and figuring out, for example, how to motivate the people on your team? They're not all the same. How to work with them, how each person kind of what their aspirations are in their own career. So I'm a big fan of this idea of customizing your leadership approach, not just in the context of introvert or extrovert, but really across the board. And it's a very interesting thing. And maybe you've seen this as well, but I've seen this where, you know, there's a team and they're getting a new boss, not necessarily a CEO, but it could be. They're getting a new boss. And what does the team talk about over the proverbial water cooler or on Zoom nowadays, right? Say, well, what's she like? What did she do before? I mean, what's her style? What's she going to make us do? You're like a criminologist that we used to say, right? You're spending all your time trying to get into the brain of that new boss and try to understand what she's all about because the implication is, all right, I have to adjust to her. I have to make her happy. And that's the natural instinct of most people. I don't know whether that is for Generation Z. It's kind of interesting to think about, and you know a bit about that, and I'll ask you. But more generally, I think it is Certainly for baby boomers, that's a big part of it. But here we are with a customized approach. It turns the whole thing on its head, doesn't it? It's the boss that comes in and says, what do I have to do to adjust my approach, my, not even my leadership style, that's too kind of hotsy-totsy, that's too general, yeah. but my day-to-day -day activities, how I interact, how I present myself, what I do. I think, and my experiences, my research has found this certainly in super bosses, the best leaders are the ones that are able to customize how they behave to the people on their team. Like I talk to my students about managing upward. I've written a bit about how do you manage upward. Mm -hmm. And part of it's saying, or we don't manage downward, we manage people who work for us. But it's something where you go, I'm an extrovert. When I work with an introvert, I change my style a bit to align with them, whether it's my boss or someone working for me. If I'm working with another extrovert, I'm going to calm down a bit and let them be front and center more because it's more effective. So you think about it, I have to work with people like myself, people that are different than me, both for them and with them. So I change my style a bit, but I need to be authentic and I got to be myself. And I want to find a position, Sid, where my natural personality is in the fore in a healthy way and I don't have to adjust it too much. So you might be a square peg in a round hole where you got to find out the right place. So I worked for IBM for 11 years. Then I went into academia and I found that doing a PhD was tough as I'm all by myself all the time. But once I became a professor, it kind of fit that I like to talk. I like to be with people. My research method is long interviews. I kind of found where my personality and who I am fit with the nature of my job. So I think that's what you want in the medium term to find out where it's a great fit, but still be flexible on occasion. Yeah, that's actually good advice for people at any stage of career, let alone CEO level, right? Finding a job where... First of all, your skill sets, your values, and you're adding also your personality, your personal style, that all these things are actually going to be advantages, not disadvantages. And this has a lot to do with culture of an organization as well. But it doesn't take away the requirement for this kind of, I use the word self-monitoring because that's a word that's been used in the research. Psychologists have used that term. You know, self-monitoring means you adjust you're monitoring yourself, not like navel gazing, can't do anything because all you do is think about how you're showing up. It just becomes a natural thing and you start to adjust to try to get the most out of a situation. I mean, even you've done this a lot. You've interviewed so many people. So I have as well. And now the podcast is a different form of uh, interviewing. But the way we're talking, 
is not the way that I'm necessarily talking to someone else because you're an academic, you understand certain things and we're talking about the underlying ideas and some of the conflicts within the ideas. Is that what I'm going to talk about with the CEO? Of course not. So I'm adjusting because I want my listeners to get the most Carl they possibly can and you're responding to it. I'm actually right so far. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's working out perfectly. So that's a very interesting thing, right? And so how does that play out in your own interviewing? Because I'm interested about that and I want to talk about research process and I don't want to forget about the extrovert idea completely. I want to go back to that. But to what extent do you do some of this self-monitoring and customization, if you will, real-time adjustment when you're interviewing? I find when I'm interviewing, like I've done some research, so I have a sense of what to talk to them about. And with the CEO uh, radio show, I have four is kind of where you grew up, what did your family do? Second and third are more strategic. And fourth is more like the Proust question or Vanity Fair. So it's kind of an approach to it. But 95% of the time I'm listening. But I find that people love to talk, even introverts. And I send them the script a couple of days ahead of time. So they already know. And they might eliminate a couple of questions, don't want to talk about that, or they might add a couple. So it makes people more relaxed. I remember one of my first radio shows, I said to a CEO, what book are you reading right now? And he had to phone a secretary, which we edited out. But any, <laughs> anybody over 40 should have a book they're reading right now. And if you don't, you're embarrassed. I don't want to embarrass them. So I sent them the script ahead of time, which means that even introverts are more comfortable. And if you are a good listener, people will fill the time with mm -hmm. thoughtful words, I find, by and large. There's rarely a CEO that there's just an uncomfortable silence. They tend to fill it. But again, it's you know just questions like, what are you doing with the COVID-19 crisis? Like any CEO in the world can have something to say about that. What have you learned as a leader? What's the future mm -hmm. of work? Stuff they've clearly thought about tends to bring out reasonably long, thoughtful answers in my experience. So just the ability to listen and come up with what are probably pretty good questions makes a big difference. It's interesting because for the SIDCast, for this podcast, I didn't send you any questions ahead of time. And I don't think you would have expected it because no. you, know, you, you can do this. <laughs> but the truth is, out of about 85 and counting podcast episodes, it can't be more than two or three times that I've sent the questions or at least an outline of the questions ahead of time. And in each case, it was a CEO and they were nervous. They were unbelievably good on the call in the podcast, but they just wanted to know. They didn't want to be surprised. They wanted to be on script. And I don't know if this is meaningful or not, but now I'm thinking of three cases. I can't think of any more than three. They're each CEOs that they asked for the questions ahead of time. And they wanted me to stick to those questions for the most part. And each of the three were women. And now I've interviewed 35 or four, almost half the guests on the SIDCast are women. So it's not exactly a conclusion, but it's three out of three that asked for the questions and were wanted to be a bit more scripted and a little bit more careful. And I don't know if this is right or not, but I perceived it as the job is so much tougher for women CEOs. If they misspeak, so to speak, if they misspeak or they're not quoted right, the ax could come down on them much more aggressively and unfairly than maybe the average male CEO. I don't know if I'm overgeneralizing. No, what do you think? It may, it's a small sample size, admittedly, but there's a fair bit of evidence saying that women often become CEO when there's a troubled organization. So yes. they're more at risk because they're brought in and they're more apt to get you know in trouble. So, But it's interesting because like I said, I interviewed the CEO worldwide, Mercedes-Benz, 300,000 people. So this is a major CEO sent him the script. We sent him the recording and they had no changes. So the vast majority of CEOs have no edits. Their PR people are so much more relaxed. Their communications people that they get to listen to it. Once in a while, they'll say something like, hey, you got a fact wrong. Or she said something that 
she said it wrong and we'll edit it out because I'm not there to embarrass them. I'm not a journalist where I'm looking for that, you know, the thing that you want to pick up in a story. But it's very rare that anyone does anything of substance. I had an interview with the Globe Mail. I started a new column where I interview Indigenous leaders and they sent it back and said, he overstated it and he, you know, just wants you to drop it. So I did. But it's very rare occurrence that that occurs, but it makes introverts more relaxed if they see it. What I say to them, Sid, is you'll say something interesting and I'll follow up on it. So I can't give you every question I'm going to ask. And they take it as a compliment that they're going to say something interesting, So, yes. <laughs> which is true. Hopefully. Good move. I like that. Because the way I like to do the SIDCAST, what we're doing, we're just kind of shooting the breeze here. Yeah. So if we're having a beer somewhere, yeah. face-to-face, wouldn't that be nice? And just talking about ideas and things you know a lot about, things I know a lot about. And I'm going under the assumption that listeners are going to find this interesting. And so far, touch wood, they have. That's what I like to do. But I know for some executives, that's not quite as uh, exciting. They need to control it a bit more. No, for sure. I mean, it may have gotten trouble in the past or something. There may be a good reason. You and I have been interviewed, you know, by the FT, the Financial, you know, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, and so on. They never send me an article before it goes out. So I was interviewed by the Trumpeter columnist of the Economist, who's an old friend, about introversion. So this is a huge thing to be in the Trumpeter column, column about you. It's just great in your research. He's an old friend, but he didn't send it to me. It just mm-hmm. came out. So it's something where journalists rightly don't send you your comments, and you're the world expert on you, Sid, you know, and maybe your wife could be a close second, but you're the world expert on your ideas. It makes sense maybe to run it by you, but journalists have never done that for me because they do their job of getting the quote right, writing it down and making sure it's all fine. So it's interesting, different approaches, a professor, an academic, you and I, than a journalist. Exactly. Journalists don't want to cede control over the story to their sources, and I totally get that. But I have seen really good fact-checking from some sources. The New Yorker, for example, was extraordinary. Every single thing, they call me back and they say, did you say this? And this is exactly the words. And I didn't record my own conversation. I didn't remember that I said it exactly that. I said, yeah, I'm okay with that. And there's been a report or two in the Wall Street Journal that would come back and want to make sure that they got my commentary right. But most of they don't. There's an interesting product I use for my research. It's called Trin. It's an AI company founded by Canadian journalists in London. And what it does is you send it a recording from Zoom, and 15 minutes later, you have a transcript. And it was because, you know, that you interview the president or the prime minister as a reporter, you want to make sure you got it right. And so you write your notes or you record it, where this does this automatically. And it's great from a research viewpoint because they're using AI. But within 15 minutes, I have an entire transcript, including a video. And I used to hire students for $15 an hour, and they would spend four hours and be miserable doing it. But you understand a journalist wants to get the right quote because they could get in trouble with someone, rightly so. Anyway, it's a different approach that you We want to make sure we got it right also. Yeah. Of course. It's interesting you mentioned Trent and Jeff Kaufman. He was recently a guest on my uh, yeah. podcast. And, you know, his backstory is really, really interesting from Emmy Award winning war reporter to uh, becoming a startup CEO. Really interesting. Let's go back to the interviewing a little bit, maybe more for your research now, and maybe for this book as well. Well, actually, I want to say something first by way of preface. I wrote a book called Why Smart Executives Fail. It came out about 18 years ago, which is kind of crazy to think about. And I interviewed about 250 senior executives, board members, and many different companies that had gone through really bad times. Some had gone out of business. Um, CEOs had made big mistakes. The fact that so many people wanted to talk to me in and of itself is fascinating and speaks to your comment about, you know, people want to talk. But you also mentioned that, you know, when you send back the transcript, they don't really have any changes. 
And I would say that that was true for almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone, even for that research. So I have a transcript where I'm asking about mistakes and disasters and things that many CEOs and senior leaders you would think don't want to talk about, but it turns out they do. And I wasn't breaking the story. They already had been in the press. The bad news had come out. I wanted to understand why and what was going on in their head. And they shared it with me. And when they sent back the transcripts, actually, most of the time they didn't. They just said, yeah, it's fine, which is really kind of fascinating, even for something like that. Now, to my question on research and interviews, for the last two or three books that I've done, the raw material have been completely interview-based. These long interviews with hundreds of people, and then you have to go through a uh, pattern recognition process. And that's the real, I mean, that's hard. That's the real joy, the real creativity, but it's also got to be rigorous. And it takes, at least for me, it took a very, very long time. My question for you is when you did these interviews with CEOs and others that led to the Ambivert conclusion, how did you go about analyzing the interview data, so to speak, to reach this conclusion? Well, you use the AI platform, Trent, as we've talked about. I also have research assistants. I have three undergrads every semester working for me for 10 or 15 hours a week. They go through there and look for patterns. So I have smart young minds helping me. Now, I'm the interviewer, so I'm the one that's looking for patterns. And when you look at qualitative research like this, how do you know you're done is when you hear nothing new. But at the early days of it, it's all new and you get surprises all the time. But over time, after done two or 300, you start having fewer surprises and then you kind of feel like I'm getting close to being done. So it's a matter of me as an interview and what I'm surprised I knowing the literature, knowing what other people have said. Plus, I have really clever young people who are helping me in that process and can bring kind of different views to it as well. So it's a combination of those two seem to work fairly well. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that. You know you're done when you, know, you stop hearing anything new. I have tended to go past that point simply because of fixation and OCD and other <laughs> crazy things that slow you down. In the end, it all gets cut by the editors anyway, so there's no benefit to just going on and on. Well, no, but you, gotta, you, you don't want to too early say it's done. You want to keep going for a while because there's a phenomena in sales when I worked for IBM is that it's called the door handle phenomena. That as you go out and you put your hand on the doorknob and you're ready to go, you go, is there anything else I missed? And it was often how often someone would have something to say just as you're leaving because it gave them a minute or two to reflect on the conversation. So it's that matter of, I think I'm done, keep going because there probably was something will come up. But at a certain point, you know, just, hey, I've done this, I'm done, I can't take it anymore, I'm so sick of it. And those feelings more kick in. So at a certain point, you just go, and the publishers are going, um, Sid, where's the book? So there's certain pressures to get on with the thing. And as Churchill said, you got to kill the beast and fling it out the door, referring to books at a certain point. You know, Churchill, what he did, not just led the free world in many ways, <laughs> I mean, eventually with FDR, fought a war, was the only part of Europe that was fighting back at one point in time, and then wrote all these books. It's mind-boggling, uh, somebody like that. I mean, it's a side note completely, but you mentioned him, and I've read several of his biographies about him, and each one I enjoy, each one I get something new from. Well, I would argue that it was a different time, so people could do that. You know, it goes mm -hmm. back to... I was teaching at Cambridge a bit, and they said that someone could read all the books in Cambridge's library 500 years ago, because there was 200 of them, where today <laughs> you can't read all the books on our field, let alone mm -hmm. all of humanity. So Churchill was an incredibly great man, without a doubt. Partly it was the times he lived in, but only a small part of it, I guess. That's really interesting, Carl. I hadn't thought about that. What I thought you were going to say, and it's also true, of course, is we have endless distractions. I mean, we're recording this and I'm looking at you on my laptop and the emails are piling up. There's no shortage of things to do. And the amount of information today 
through blogs and there's a lot of companies starting subscription services, which is already overdone. Anyone can be a writer. It's really kind of amazing. I think we need to cut out the quiet time for ourselves. Ironically, for an expert to say that, but we need that time to think and reflect as academics or business people. We need mm -hmm. to take that time because if you're just frenetic activity, so that idea of quiet and a focus, there's been a number of good books on it. I think it's an important one for virtually everybody these days. And I see students like they talk about they're on their phones five hours a day. You have what in the world are they doing? Mm -hmm. They need to get away from it. Because that's where greatness would arise from in our better moments is being in the activity, but stepping back from it and reflecting. And that's why we get sabbaticals on occasion, I think. But we need well, sabbaticals idea, every yeah, week in a sense. This idea of reflection is becoming bigger and bigger. More managers, more people are recognizing it. And I've been espousing that for my students for some time as well. Even 10 minutes. Most people say, I don't have time for reflection. I mean, I'm working 24-7. Well, if you can't take 10 minutes, do it on a commute when I don't know whether you should be driving at that time or not, and we're not exactly commuting very much. Take a walk around the block. I mean, 10 minutes is not a lot. Let me ask you this, Carl. When did you know, when did you discover you were an extrovert? I think it came back to when I was a kid, probably in college particularly. I mean, one of my friends was student body president and just over-the-top extrovert. I wasn't in his range, but I was south of that. But I think I became more extroverted in my 20s and 30s as I worked for IBM. I went through sales training. I was a salesperson. A product manager, I just felt more comfortable, but it evolved in my 20s and 30s, where the research says it goes back to when we're babies, but it's also the context of the environment you're in, the job that's required. That's when I came to it. And you know, when I talk to people in their 50s and 60s about it, there's often a maturing process where they tend to get a little bit more towards the middle as they get older because of life requirements. But there's just a natural, what do you want to do Saturday night? How do you recharge your batteries? So when I go to a restaurant without my wife and kids, I sit at the bar typically and talk to total utter strangers, which is my way of recharging where my wife as an invert would rather sit by, if she's ever by herself and read a book. But I just find it stimulating to talk to utter strangers on the plane. And so when I say this, some of my students draw back in horror as the universe. They go, yes, I'm that person. But it's just something where I'm happy to talk to anyone about almost any topic within reason for half an hour. And I just find it, it recharges my batteries. I'm certainly more on the introvert scale, but doing what we do for a living, again, nothing is normal right now, but ordinarily I'm traveling around the world, giving talks, working with people. I'm a teacher, I'm a stand-up speaker. There could be 10 people, there could be a thousand people in the room. And I'm never afraid. I'm never worried about it. And you know, the stereotype is that introverts are worried about it. And I've reflected on that and I've thought, well, you know, I learned how to do that. It wasn't actually very hard to learn at all. And I learned how to do it. And maybe at IBM, for example, you learned, you had natural tendencies to be an extrovert, but you learned certain techniques and how to be a more effective salesperson. In other words, how to use that extroversion to make a sale, to accomplish things. So in other words, you could learn to be more introverted. You could learn to be more extroverted. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, it's introverts make great speakers, great professors, if they know what they're talking about, which as a professor, we should. You know, when I comment to the media, they'll phone me up and say, can you comment this? And I'll go, no, because I don't know anything. Like, I'll talk about Jeff Molson, the CEO of the Montreal Canadiens, but I won't talk about who should play in what line, even though I play hockey and have opinions. My opinions are not privileged. They're just, we have beer after the game and we discuss it. But 
I won't comment on that. So as a professor said, you'd give great talks about something you've studied, you've thought about, and you're a world expert on, not that you know everything, but you know something. And so as an introvert, you're much more relaxed if you know what you're talking about. The danger of an extrovert is, I'll make it up as I go along. So I've said to audiences, there's three things you should know about ambiverts, and I don't know the third one. What happens, it'll come to my mind, or I'll say to the audience, I've given you two points on ambiverts, discuss what my third point should be. And they'll talk and they'll come up with great ideas. Mm -hmm. Now, you might call me over and go, Carl, you don't have an idea, do you? And we'll laugh at the sure chutzpah of the extrovert. But an introvert would never say I have three points unless they already know the three points. So they're more relaxed because I've got my three points in my mind and I've thought about them. I've worked through the research. I may be wrong, but I think they're pretty right. So someone like you as an introvert can be a great speaker because you know your subject well. You know what's really interesting and this happened actually a lot. And maybe it's because, you know, people in the media, they end up talking about all sorts of things and they're not an expert on any of those things, but they can talk. And I'm not talking about necessarily the talking heads that are presumably an expert on something. I'm talking about more of the hosts. And so I have been on live TV where I've been asked, you know, ahead of time, they want to know what you're going to talk about. And there's a give and take. I mean, they ask you to be on, so they know what you want to talk about. They want to know your angle on something. And I've been asked questions that have nothing to do with that topic at all, as if I could answer anything. And live TV, you got to come up with something. You could say, I don't know. And I have said that, but you got to say it the right way. And I've been stunned, really, no longer. I mean, all this is fine. You could do whatever you want. I say I could answer anything about anything now because I figured out how to do it. I might not be right about a lot of that, but I figured out just how to manage that thing. But I used to be stunned the first times that that happened, that these reporters, especially the TV reporters, they'd ask you these things that have nothing to do with what you're there to talk about. On occasion, when you say, I don't know, it actually adds credibility. Because if you say on occasion, I don't know, it means when you do speak, you probably do know. So it actually ironically adds your credibility once in a while. But I've been on those TV shows and, you know, you wing it to some degree, but, you know, I'm here to talk about this subject and you can say something, but you want to be, you know, you're more careful just to take good sense. Yeah. I mean, it's just funny that they ask that. Yeah. yeah, No, it's the nature of media, I think. Do you have any tips on how someone could become more extroverted if that's not their natural inclination? Because, you know, if we're talking about the importance of doing both and it's not your natural thing, probably be good to learn how to do it. What's interesting, I had Claude Majot, who uh, ran CN, 25,000 people here in Montreal. And I asked him in CEO class, are you an extrovert introvert? He was the first person I really had asked about. And he said, I'm an introvert, went on for 10 minutes about being an introverted leader in a quiet way. He said he had a coach when he was COO, and he was thinking about, they were thinking about making him CEO. And said, Claude, here's a clicker like a guy in a bar would have. And he said, five times a day, act like an extrovert and click it. So five times a day. So, for example, when you get in the elevator at CN's headquarter, instead of looking at his feet and saving CN $100,000, look and say, good morning, Sid. And something like, it's a nice day out. There's something you're not going to argue with. And then say, Sid, great presentation last week. You really killed it. Then get off the elevator. One, because as CEO, if I get on the elevator with you and you ignore me, I go, my career's in trouble. I'm sending my resume to the competitors. And it's something where it's just good CEO, more extroverted behavior. He learned to do it. So what he would do is practice being extrovert, but he also had the introvert breaks where he go to his office, close the door and just recharge his batteries mm-hmm. and think deep thoughts. So it's a matter you can practice some of these things where it's part of the role and just learn to be a bit more extroverted, but you tend to do it in a little bit quieter way. You know, what's also really interesting about that is that 
you could do it if you want to do it, if you're willing to do it. It's actually not that hard. I don't think I could turn myself into, you know, extrovert all the time. I wouldn't want to. I'd be miserable. I would not enjoy it. On the other hand, I certainly can do it. And anyone can do it if they wanted to. And so the key thing is you have to be just willing. Yeah, you have to recognize you could learn this. Yes, we're born that way, but there are certain things we were born that way that you can adjust. And you can uh, and realize that you've done it for a while. You're exhausted by it all. Take introvert breaks and recharge. So as an extrovert, I can act like an introvert, but it exhausts me. So I go do the extrovert break to recharge myself. Now, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. What are ambivert breaks? So an ambivert break is if you act like an introvert, you take an extrovert break. If you've acted like an extrovert, you take an introvert break. But again, they're shorter than the extrovert breaks I would need or the introvert breaks you might need. But you take the break of the opposite. But one of the faults about ambiverts was I never mentioned, they just sounded better than I. They can do everything, it seems. But there was a couple weaknesses. One is they're not as good at being an extrovert as I am. And secondly, they're confusing. People go, you're like this sometimes, and sometimes like that. And that's the only time I use that voice, but it seems to really be the right voice that you just confuse people. I don't know who you are. And so that's part of the problem that there are a couple weaknesses to ambiverts. It's not all good. So what do you recommend a manager, an executive, a CEO do about that? Like when I have people work for me, I say, are you an introvert or extrovert? And we discuss it. So if I'm an ambivert, I might, you know, talking to the C-suite, say, hey, guys, ladies and gentlemen, I'm an ambivert. Let me explain what that means. And so sometimes I act like an extrovert, sometimes an introvert, and I won't be consistent, but it's because I'm trying to do the right thing at the right occasion. So it's the right thing to do, but it may strike you as it's harder to pick than the real extrovert or the real introvert. But I think in my better Mm -hmm. moments, it's a strength. Yeah, I really like that notion because it's a very generalizable notion. It's almost like laying your cards on the table and explaining it. And you're kind of disarming your opponent when you're doing that. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not being inconsistent. This is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because it's more effective than anything else. I found that to be the case. We could talk about it if you think that, you know, you're not picking up on what we need to do or your role, et cetera, et cetera. And you're just being honest about that. And I think that's pretty powerful. And what you're doing is you're minimizing the amount of time other people are scratching their heads, talking to each other, wasting time trying to figure you out. My students know I'm an extrovert. So I go take extrovert breaks and talk to them and recharge my battery. But they'll tease me. They'll go, uh, extrovert break? And they'll laugh. But they can also, maybe they can tease me in a helpful way to go, Carl, calm down. You're dominating. Mm-hmm. You be quiet for a minute. But they can do it in a, a way that it's, they know you and they're teasing you, but you know there's some mm-hmm. truth to it. So it's done in a nice way so right. that they can help me with my excesses occasionally. And a good spouse will do this, but occasionally my wife will just tap me under the table because I got into trouble and I should just shut up right then and she'll rescue me. Now, I remember I worked yeah. at IBM there. The customer engineer manager was Big Bob Baird. In a meeting one time, I'm a salesman. He says something he shouldn't have. So I kick him under the table and he goes, who kicked me? And everybody roars with laughter. <laughs> and I just went, you know, I put my hands over my face. But clearly it was me. And it was just one of those moments where you go, Bob, you shouldn't say that. But anything the man said was gospel truth. He could not varnish the truth. So everyone yeah. totally trusted him. And it was a great life lesson for me. Yeah, these are all examples, by the way, of the power of self-awareness. The more you know about yourself, and we're talking about introvert, extrovert, there's so many other dimensions, although that's a big one. And if you know that, then you know yourself and you're aware of it, you could deal with it so much better. It's actually a pretty good example. I do talk about self-awareness both in coaching and in the classroom. And I haven't talked about introvert, extrovert before in that context, because people get it, right? I mean, when you talk about introvert, everyone knows what that means. This is not some fancy technical managerial term that was just invented. 
everybody gets it. And that's a big advantage. Well, the ambivert's a new one. But sometime when I give a talk and I say, eventually, if you have a hammer, everything's a nail. And I talk about how last year I was fixing your back fence and I was using a hammer to put in screws. So an elderly neighbor comes by and goes, Carl, that's wrong. Almost morally wrong. <laughs> but a screw is a better fastening device if you screw it in. But if you use a hammer, the screw's not living up to its potential. I mean, it's metal, so we're not too worried about it. But the idea is that when you look at a human being, like you said, like you're an introvert, you're a man, you're a boomer, you're married, there's many things. You're a professor. To get to know you, you're a very complex person. And your family would totally agree with that thought, that you're very complex. So if I want to work with you and manage you or be led by you, I can think of you as an introvert and as a boomer and as a man, as a professor, but... I can't just think of you through one lens. So it's a great lens, introvert, ambivert, extrovert. But you put that hat on, but you take it off fairly rapidly to let me think Mm -hmm. about it generationally. Or let me think about it in terms of the culture that he comes from, the country he's from, things like that. Right. That's another good point, because so many people frame others and categorize others. And of course, we see that with male, female. We see that with black, white and other kind of simplifications. And as you know, it's a very, very powerful thing, this type of implicit bias, sometimes explicit bias. You look at someone who's a senior executive or a professor, and let's say she happens to be black. And so what dominates your thinking? It's that she is a she and she is black. And there there are these 50 other things about that person, or at least four or five other things that are also prominent, maybe not quite as obvious because you see that. What might be your function? She's an accountant or a lawyer and views the world through those lenses. So what I'm trying to add to the diversity, equity, inclusion thought is say race and gender are the most important. And gender, given how girls are treated around the world, is probably even more important, but you know, they're both incredibly important. I'm adding another aspect is introversion, ambiversion, and extroversion. But I can't look at you and go, Sid's an extrovert or an introvert. I can say he's a man, well, you and I are bald, so it clarifies it, and we're boomers probably from uh, you know the gray, a little bit of gray anyway. So something where I can judge you, but I go, to get to know you, I need to actually spend time with you to say whether you're... So I went and gave a talk at Oliver Wyman at their introversion group in New York last year, and they look at introversion as another part of diversity. There's more important aspects, gender and race, but personality is part of diversity that we need to think about is what I'm arguing. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, you have done, especially more recently, work with Indigenous groups, Indigenous leaders. Can you share a little bit about what that work is and what you're finding? Well, Paul Martin, the former prime minister, came to my CEO class a couple of years ago, and his thing since being prime minister has been helping Indigenous people in Canada, just something that he has taken on as a mission, and he's very respected for it. So the next day, I went up to uh, student services. I'm taking students to Tokyo, Bangkok, and Hong Kong. Do you have any money for Indigenous people? And they gave me four full scholarships, this year 10. So one third of my class was indigenous. So got to know them and spend time with them. And I went down to the publisher of the Globe, who's an old friend, and said, I'd like to do a column with indigenous graduate student where we interview indigenous leaders, because for centuries, white men like me have been lecturing indigenous people how to live. Let's turn the tables and listen to what they have to teach us about leadership, about climate change, about life. And so that's what we've been doing as a biweekly column in the Globe Mail, Canada's national newspapers, they call themselves, with a wonderful Indigenous student went to Dartmouth, matter of fact, for undergrad in psychology, Harvard now at McGill doing a master's degree in educational leadership. And what we're doing is listening to what they have to teach us. And there's a couple of points have come out thus far. One is the importance of community to Indigenous people. They talk often about their grandmothers, about the elders. They talk about creation and are in greater touch than many of us city dwellers 
where I don't go back to the house I grew up in, but they go back to the reserve. They go back to creation and they talk about seven generations. And then the third point, which has really come up is the idea, which is not a new one, is servant leadership is is more hardwired into indigenous thinking are three of the kind of tentative conclusions that have come along thus far. And we're kind of digging deeper and trying to find more things, but also to see if we've got those three are some of the more important ones. And they're ones that argue non-Indigenous people like you and I can learn from and try to bring into our lives and our leadership. I think that's great. We'll make sure we include some links for listeners who want to read some of those articles. Are you seeing in Canada more attention on diversity inclusion, specifically with respect to Indigenous people? Well, it's about 5% of Canada's population, and they're having a lot of children, so it's a growing part. But it's something where Canada... The way we've treated Indigenous people was absolutely horrific around residential schools, particularly, where they would take small children away from their parents in the reserve and send them to schools far away. And there was at times sexual abuse. There was certainly not allowed to speak their language, things like that, where it was just terrible things that Canada did. And we rightly feel that we fell short as understating it. So in Canada, it's an issue where there's a growing sense of conscience about Paul Martin, one of the prime ministers, Stephen Harper, another prime minister after Paul Martin, Jean Chrétien, all brought it to the fore. But it's something where there's a sense that we need to do better as a country and be more respectful of the First Nations and listen to them more is a thing which has caught on. And the Black Lives Matter in the U.S. has kind of given us some more impetus to it, where it's kind of, to a certain degree, Canada's Black Lives Matter. We have a lot of Black Canadians as well. Many came as former slaves from the U.S. There's a little bit of a different history, and there's lots of prejudice here in our worst moments. But the Indigenous people is something which is on the minds of Canadians. That's why the Globe is, you know, having a column, among others, that there's a sense of we've done some wrong things here, and we have to make up for it in some ways. That's certainly different than in the U.S., where there is a tension, but not nearly, I think, to the same extent. Well, you know, there's Blacks and Latinx and prejudice mm-hmm. there, which is a bigger issue. But you look at Arizona, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Alaska, there's parts where there's a bigger Indigenous population. But again, there's a huge Black and Latinx population in the U.S. that we don't have in Canada to the same degree. So it's a different set of problems. But there is a fair number of Indigenous people in the U.S. as well. But you may not be aware of it because of where we live. Right. So we're getting near the end of our time on the podcast, Carl. So maybe just another uh, couple of questions. One is about all the CEOs that you've interviewed. It's kind of an impossible question because, you know, if somebody asked me this, I can come up with something, but I'm not sure what it is. And I'm going to think about what my answer would be. But out of all those CEOs, I mean, what makes somebody a CEO? Is it just someone who fought their way through it to get to the top? Is it luck? Or was there some essence that you found, whether it's personality, whether it's behavioral, whether it's career experience, that separates the people that are at the very top of their professions compared to others that might be very successful but are not at the top? I mean, there's some prejudice against women, particularly in the past, and from people of color and so on. So there's some things which it tended to favor white men who'd gone to the right schools. But we think of the president of the United States, other than uh, President Obama, they almost went all to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and so on. So we see that more generally. But putting that to aside, because this class this year of my 26 guests, more than half were women or people of color. So that it's shifted. I worked a bit at that, but they're just great leaders. So we see increasingly that going away to some degree. But two things strike me is that you got to deliver. 
you got to perform in your earlier jobs. So you deliver the results, but you also know how to build networks and work with people effectively. So it's someone that can deliver, but does it in a way that maintains allies and friends and people that are fans within the organization. So it's a combination of, if you just deliver, but you're a jerk, we may keep you around, but we're not going to let you get to senior leadership. And if you don't deliver, you're never going to be in the frame for senior leadership. So a couple of themes that keep coming up from CEOs is, Deliver, but also maintain good relationships that people have a genuine warmth from you and towards you. I think that's a great answer. I think the people that treat others badly, we do see plenty of them get to the top. I feel like there will be fewer, but you know, time will tell. But you know, the most successful CEOs that are out there, they are really tough, right? They're not weak, but they understand the importance of people. I think of someone like a Jeff Bezos, who's hard to imagine a more transformational leader in the last 25 years than him. And there have been some others like that. Incredibly smart, hard driving, lots of stories about Amazon's work culture, et cetera, et cetera. Although I don't think that's a big deal, frankly, compared to so many other places that I've seen. But it's a place that people keep coming and growing and getting opportunities. And so it's a place that has become a talent kind of network and a talent pool place. So I don't know. We'll see whether that changes over time or, or not. I like the idea, though. I like the idea of someone who can deliver. I mean, you can't be an effective leader if you can't get the job done. Yeah. I say this all the time. Sometimes people say, yeah, well, a leader does this and high integrity. Yes. Great communicator. Yes, absolutely. Except, but if you can't produce, if you can't bring home the bacon, forget about it. It's just not going to work. So last question. It's an advice question. I like to ask people at the end of our chat, and I know you've been asked for your own personal advice for others, but this is advice, a little bit different twist. It's advice to yourself. If you could magically go back in time to when you were, say, 21 years old, the 21-year-old Carl Moore, and you could kind of lean over to him and say, you know, if there's one thing you really want to know, if there's one thing you want to understand, if there's one thing you want to do or not do, if there's one bit of advice I have for you, 21-year-old Carl, it's this. What would that be? I hear this from many CEOs, but I ask them a similar question for my students. And part of it is saying, go broad. That specific sets of knowledge are going to become dated, but the ability to learn and think is good throughout your life. And you need to be learning all the time. So go broad and don't worry so much. Now, we're boomers, yeah. so it worked out. And, you know, it's tougher times now. But by and large, I think I worried too much today, but as a younger person, and I should have been more optimistic and positive, would have probably been helpful for me at that age. This don't worry too much is a very interesting idea. When you look at people today that are in school in university, let's say, you know, 21 years old, for example, people in the top schools and are really driven, they are in such a hurry. I don't know if it's worry, but it's certainly they're in a hurry. They can't wait to get to wherever they're getting. And one thing that many people have answered this question I just asked you with a flavor that's related to what you said, but it's a little bit different in that, why are you in such a hurry? Why was I in such a hurry? It turns out that life and careers and being successful, I mean, it's a process and it's a cliche, but it's true. And if you're not enjoying the process of getting to where you're getting, then what's the point of getting there? And it turns out that, you know, maybe this generation is as driven as any others, maybe more so. It turns out to be a big problem. I mean, there was a um, couple of years ago at the Dartmouth uh, graduation, the commencement speaker was a kid that had, of course, perfect grades and finished almost a year early, uh, which is not that simple to do in a four-year college uh, like Dartmouth. And in his last 
year or a little bit less than a year, he started doing all kinds of extracurricular, so to speak. And he realized what he had missed out in the first three years plus. And that's what he talked about in his commencement. And I thought that was a very powerful message, very meaningful message. And I think one that's quite accurate to what I've seen with a lot of young people. It's a journey. It's not a destination as a famous saying, but there's a lot of truth to that. And I think the friendships along the way, the conversations are some of the greatest joys, like this one. I wonder if extroverts don't fall into that trap more often, you know, that extroverts are more likely to truly engage along the way as opposed to just being totally goal-directed. I mean, is there something on that that you found? Introverts actually might be better to have a long, serious conversation. Introverts might be better at it, where the extrovert might get, you know, I'll see Joe over there, I'll go say hi to Joe, or I'll see Jane over there where introverts are more apt to go, let's have a one-on-one and let's have a good conversation. So introverts, I think those long, good conversations and long-lasting friendships are some of the greatest joys in life. And maybe the COVID-19 crisis has brought that home in a way different than the rest of my life. But those are some of the things really worth cherishing. And some of the friends you make in university or in college, as you say in the States, are some of the most profound and lasting ones you can have in life. And with things like LinkedIn, when I graduated, you had no idea where people went. You might have the address of their parents. Presumably, they would know where their son or daughter is. But today, it's so much easier to keep in touch. And I would encourage young people, the young Carl, if you would, to keep in touch with at least some of those people. Right. Great advice. Carl Moore, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure. Always fun to talk, Sid. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.